Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett, and this is Stories of the Saints. Our guest today is Bob Bobbitt. I've known Bob for quite some time. I met him back in 1995-ish when I came out to Missouri to do uh, an internship with the Youth Missionary Corps, and he taught us how to teach others about Jesus. Uh, He's got uh, quite a resume. He's working right now at CPRS as a teacher, teaching religious studies to the children. And uh, Bob, I just want to welcome you here this morning. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. I'm always appreciative when someone agrees to come on and share their story of Jesus. So I wanted to say I met your dad, um, and you gave me permission to share this, when I was working at um, one of the hospitals here in town. He was in for a procedure, and I saw the last name, Bobbitt, and we talked for uh, some time, asked him if he knew you, and of course he said he did know you. (laughs) Tell me, your dad was a 70 in the church. Tell me about that and your maybe your earliest memory of Jesus growing up. Well, uh, my mom and dad grew up in Houston, Texas. And uh, when dad graduated from Rice, um, he was asked to go under appointment as a full-time minister, as a, an appointee. And... Um, so he was moved around a lot to different places, uh, Oklahoma and Tennessee and uh, finally in Philadelphia, where I was born in 1955. So um, he uh, was uh, new to the, the this whole thing, and he was pretty young, and he was the uh, very young district um, president. Uh, I think he was in his early 20s. And um, he, when he came in, the saints uh, kind of rejected his ministry. He would have a habit of going to prayer services every week and visiting different prayer services. And I remember that he told me he was so discouraged by the rejection he had felt that one night he pulled over the side of the road on his way to a prayer service, and he um, prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I am at my wit's end. Nobody will support me. And he was despairing. And so he went on ahead to the prayer service, and he sat in the back row. And a man, and I can't remember his name, had the gift of prophecy. There were just a group of them all in the front two rows of the church. This man stood up without even looking back at my father. And he said, he pointed with his finger, and my dad turned around and said, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Ralph Pobbett and uh, spoke to him and said, you have felt alone in your ministry. You have been despairing, but the Lord is with you, and he will raise you up, and he will give you hope, and the saints of this district will lift up your arms as Aaron and her, and you will be find yourself supported by them. And that was uh, an amazing, I think his name was 
Ira Hume, I believe, in Philadelphia. Hmm. And uh, uh, he spoke to Dad directly, and that was a very powerful experience for Dad. And then I remember him telling me that that's exactly what happened in the Philadelphia district in the next year. Everybody came to his aid. Now, why did that happen? Dad said, well, he found out later that uh, the saints had been told, uh, the previous minister before Dad, appointee, had uh, tried to move the church out from Ellis Street, which is in downtown or Philadelphia, out to the suburbs. And the saints didn't like that. And so they thought he had been sent for that same purpose, and he wasn't even aware of that. He had mm. no idea that that was what they suspected. And so they'd been kind of cool to him. But then they gathered around him uh, and gave him strength and helped him in a way that uh, was amazing after that. That's uh, What was that like, uh, being a young child, to move around so much for you? Yeah, I don't <laughs> even remember these things in Philadelphia. They went to Deer Park Reunion Ground and a bunch of other stuff like that that I don't remember. But uh, my earliest memories were of Jackson, Ohio, and I was three years old. And Dad was still an appointee. And he would preach a lot. He'd be gone for a week at a time doing preaching series. And I remember that our church was right down the hill from our house. And my mom, I can remember holding her hand and walking to a class where my father taught about life after death and hell. And I got this impression when I was three years old, I don't want to go to that place. <laughs> I really was uh, just uh, mesmerized by that whole class because I sat there thinking, I don't want that. I know I don't want the bad place. And so I got that much in my mind. After Jackson, we moved to Detroit, and we moved two times. And so I spent kindergarten and first grade in Detroit at one point, I lived next door to Ken McLean. Uh, he was four years old. I was six years old. Okay. Yeah. I know that name from the real estate signs, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's an attorney here in town. Um, but in Detroit, I remember one time I had a 102-degree temperature, and Dad was away on a preaching series for a week, and— um, Mom called for the elders, and they came to our house, and they administered to me. And the temperature dropped right then, just immediately, just within an hour. Mm. And it was amazing to my mom. My dad, when he got home, mom talked to him and said, uh, I couldn't get a hold of you, but Dad said, right at that moment, it's interesting, the Lord spoke to me in, a, in just a clear manner. It was inaudible, but it was clear. Something's wrong with Bobby. I need to pray for him. And uh, he prayed for me at that moment. So that was a powerful experience to me 
in Detroit. I can remember Dad uh, doing the go ye and teach uh, gospel presentation. It was in slide form, and it was created by uh, Jim Doherty, I think, and Arthur Oakman, and and uh, he would show it out in the driveway, mm. and Mom would make caramel popcorn balls, <laughs> and uh, uh, they serve them. They had folding chairs and a big screen out the driveway to try and draw <laughs> kids in from the neighborhood or okay. that wanted to watch it. So. That's a. Uh that's come full circle. Now people are playing projectors out in movies and things. Yeah. So he, he was ahead of his time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's great. So she's yeah. making treats, and he's, yeah. and he's talking about Jesus. with the, That's right. And that's where I learned a lot about Christ. I remember going on a missionary visit to a home with Dad and him showing the slides, except he had me running the projector to move the slides in and out. Uh, that was first grade. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, I remember the same thing with my dad and my uncle, who was pastor of our church forever. Was uh, And I, I don't know if the World Church sent out these projectors, but we had one, and you could either look at it like a TV, or you could move the thing, and it would, it would show the picture up on the wall. But yeah. I remember just hitting the button, and that was so fun as a kid to be able to do that. But yeah, you, you hear it several times, and it starts to take hold. <laughs> right, right. I went to church in Highland Park, Michigan. Uh, it was an all-black church. In, uh, uh, in fact, in 1968, it was where some of the riots occurred. Mm. And um, I was the only white kid in vacation church school. And, uh, uh, but I enjoyed it. I remember us marching around the block. We had a big banners, and we... Uh, talked about Jesus, and we would sing songs and and uh, uh, to get the neighborhood interested in the uh, vacation church school. So this was a RLDS church that yes. was all but all black, all black RLDS Highland Park, Highland yeah. Park, Michigan. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah. What was how uh, did you feel out of place, or did you feel accepted? I felt right at home. Yeah. I, you know, to me, it was just like any other church <laughs> as a kid. You don't have any uh, preconceptions about anything concerning race. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. I thought it was kind of odd, though. I was the only white. <laughs> that, that did occur to me, but it was, just a, it was just a simple fact that didn't mean much. Right, yeah. yeah. So you felt at home and just yeah. like any of— right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's interesting because most of my life, I've you know, I've been in places where there's been you know one or two black people or of different races, yeah. and and to be uh, to have that flipped would be interesting. Yeah, it was a <laughs> Which, good experience. It was good for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's crazy. So you were marching around the block, right? Around the block with uh, banners and. And telling everybody about Christ, uh, kind of, that's what we thought we were doing as kids. We were, you know, that's the impression I had as a little kid in kindergarten and first grade. And, uh, yeah, we did that at vacation church school. (laughs) Well, so I know you're you're married, Bob. Uh, Tell me, uh, let's fast forward a ways. How did you meet your wife? Was she a member of the faith as well? And just tell me a little bit about that. Well, in um, college, I graduated in 77, and I came down here. Where'd you go? Uh, to Independence. 
I came to Independence okay. from Lamoni. From oh, where did I go? You to go to college? Graceland? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, I went four years. My mom and dad both taught at Graceland um, for about twenty years, and so after appointment, dad was let go, and I think it was about sixty-three, and we moved to Austin. He got his PhD there, and then. We moved up to Orangeburg, and he taught one year at CMSU or UCM. And um, I want to let our listeners know that that may not know when you say under appointment, he was basically a full time minister missionary for the church. Yes, he was for about eleven years. Okay, for about eleven years, and then for a, I think it was nineteen years, he was a college professor at Graceland. But. Okay. Anyway, so he went back. He said he got let go from appointment in 63, and um, he said, what do I do, Lord? He was at a crossroads. And so he said, I, I think I'll go back, and I'll get my doctorate in psychology. Wow. So we <laughs> lived in a little tiny trailer, and I was a handful as a kid. <laughs> I was hard to take care of. Did you have and, siblings? Yeah, I had one brother, Ken. Oh, okay. It's my brother, and he's younger than me, just okay. a little bit younger. And um, so I I, uh, I remember living in that little trailer. It was by the Colorado River, and Brother Earl Allen, who made a huge impression mm. on my life, came and invited me to make a commitment to Christ. And uh, that meant the world to me. He's brother a- Earl He's yeah. a special place in my heart because he uh, he gave me my blessing, my patriarchal blessing. He did. I was uh, we were attending reunion in Wilberton, Oklahoma, back in the nineties, uh, uh, early nineties, and there was about ten or twelve patriarchs there every morning for the restoration reunion for the prayer service, uh-huh. and my my grandpa had passed on, and he just I knew I wanted to get my blessing. I was about twenty years old, nineteen or twenty. And my mom said, well, you just pick somebody. <laughs> and I said, well, he reminds me of my grandpa. So I picked Earl and went and talked to him, and we, we spent the week together, and he did that. So he was from McAllen, Texas, I think, yes. a Texas guy. Yes, he was. <laughs> and so I I spent about four or five years in Austin. Okay. And while Dad was getting his master's and Ph.D., and um, uh, he was under a lot of pressure. But we would go every Sunday to this little white frame church in Austin. And on the steps of that church, Brother Earl was there every single Sunday welcoming people into the building. Mm. And every Sunday, he would bend over. And I was a little eight-year-old kid, or nine or 10, uh, during that time. And he would lean over and shake my hand. He'd say, and Brother Bobbitt, how are you? And that meant the world to me. I felt uh, very important because of that. You may, you probably don't remember any of his sermons, maybe, or what is specifically he said, but you remember him being there and taking interest in you. He had a powerful influence on my life. Yeah. Mm. And when he came to my house or trailer and invited me to make a commitment to Christ, I took that very seriously. And, uh, it meant a lot to me. It wasn't something I did trivially. It was, uh, and I was baptized by my father and then confirmed by my dad and Brother Herman Milner. Um, so it meant a lot to me. I remember that day, and I remember specifically 
what happened, and uh, I've never forgotten it. Mm. So that was that was Texas, Austin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you uh, did you meet your wife at Graceland, or did you say you came down here to Independence? Well. Uh, like I said, my dad spent that year in Orangeburg after he got his mm-hmm. PhD, and then we moved to Lamoni. So I spent junior high and high school okay. and college there. And um, after I got out of college in 77, I went to work in Independence um, at uh, Independence Plan for Neighborhood Councils. And it was run by Dick Hetrick, who was a close personal friend of my father. And lived about two blocks from here on 511 North Delaware. So um, Dick wanted me to go to work for him. So I did that for a year. One year after I started there, there was this girl that walked in the front door of the uh, office. And there were about, I don't know, 15 of us working there. And um, all church members uh, all of us trying to organize the city of Independence to become a Zionic community. And we had divided up the city into neighborhoods. I think this one was neighborhood 19 that we're sitting in here, I believe. And um, anyway, this girl one day walked in, and she was in college age, she had just graduated from Kansas University. She'd had no relationship to the church whatsoever, never heard of it. She was here for to talk to Dick about a job. And uh, so I opened the door for her, and she came in, and something said to me I would get to know her better. It didn't say you're going to marry her or anything magical like that, but it was just that I would get to know her better. Well, I left the building, and uh, Dick had an interview with her, and he hired her on the spot. And he put her desk right next to my desk, so we were sitting side by side okay. for a year. And I think he did that on purpose. Uh, so I uh, guess you got to know her better. Oh, I did. <laughs> I did. Over that year, we came, became the best of friends. She became my very best friend in the whole world. ask her out on dates um, and she would turn me down uh, she did that continuously for a year and uh, and I'd see these guys come in on Friday nights and pick her up and take her out on dates so she did date people 
So, <laughs> just not you. Not me. Just not me. <laughs> gotcha. And, um, uh, you know, one time a Houston Oiler football player, professional football player, came and picked her up and, and took her out. And then another week, a reporter on Channel 5 that I'd watch on TV all the time came and picked her up and and she was always oh, wow. going out all She got the, the popular guy. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was very popular at KU. So, okay. Yeah, she was. Uh, these are all ex-students at Kansas that knew her from there. Gotcha. And, uh, uh, but she had no relationship with the church. But as she spent that year with Independence Plan for neighborhood councils, there are various people on the staff there that had a chance to just tell her little snippets of information about the gospel, about the Book of Mormon, about um, its restoration. And she was very impressed with the spirit that she felt there. And it made a real impression on her. So the day came where she was so interested in it, she wanted to know more. And so she uh, asked me a question. She said, where are the plates today that the angel Moroni gave to Joseph Smith? Where are they today? I said, that's a very good question. <laughs> I said, sit down. You're not going to believe this. I said, uh, I said, the angel took them. Oh, well, that's a likely excuse. Uh, yeah, right. And she was very skeptical at that point. And, uh, but she still couldn't help but be enticed by the spirit that she felt among the people there. And she thought, you know, there's something here. There's a truth here that I'm not uh, fully comprehending. So I'm going to read this Book of Mormon for myself. And she did. She read it, and she was very hungry. She came hungry. She had been searching uh, for the truth her whole life. And uh, so she went to a, a camp, a reunion, not a reunion, it was a weekend retreat uh, with Harvest House. Do you mm -hmm. know what Harvest House is? It was uh, kind of a contemporary Christian um, uh, thing with Wade Hankins and a number of other people. I remember Wade Hankins. Yeah. Is he from Michigan? You know, he might be. Uh -huh. uh, Dick Hetrick was close to Wade Hankins yeah. Sr., so they had a connection. I remember that name anyway. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Maybe Pennsylvania. I'm not okay. sure, but somewhere in the Northeast. And anyway, um, she went to this weekend retreat, and there she met a number of friends that we've had for 40-some years. And she also finally said, you know what? I'm going to make a commitment to Christ. I want to be baptized. So Wade Hankins baptized her at Walnut Gardens Church. And so... Um, she still hadn't gone out with me this whole time. You know, it was a year. Right. And uh, she still would date me. And so um, she finally acquiesced and said, okay, I'll, I'll uh, do that. I'll go out with you. And she, uh, she did. We, we became, we were the best of friends anyway. And uh, uh, I felt like, it was the most, one of the most, the greatest blessing, perhaps one of the greatest blessings, 
besides my commitment to Christ that um, ever happened in my life because mm. I didn't think that was going to happen. And um, the Lord blessed me with a wonderful wife. Persistence yes. paid off. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so she needed time probably to to come in. and uh, So she kind of found the Lord and her commitment uh, independently of you. It wasn't yes. because of you. That's right. And so that's interesting. Exactly. exactly. But every night we would have deep discussions after work about the gospel and what we believed. And and uh, it was sometimes it would go for hours. So Wow. My wife wasn't a member when we got married, and shortly after getting married, I uh, took a job where I had to work weekends, every weekend, so that I could have the week off. Uh, that way, our son could, you know, have somebody around. And um, and she she went to church every Sunday on her own, but without me. And she kind of came to the Lord in, in that manner. Um, anyway, on on her own, and, and I look back now and thought, well, I didn't want to leave her every Sunday, but it seemed to be kind of a blessing because I knew that there was something happening independent of me. Yeah. And, and that means a lot. Oh, it meant the world. Yeah. To have so many good saints surrounding her and testifying to her of Christ and the gospel. Okay. Meant a lot. So did you uh, have children? Yes, we did. Um, in 1984, we got married in 80, and okay. in 1984, we had our first, our son, Stephen, and we had four kids after that, so we had a total of five kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, they're all adults today. Uh, Stephen works as Cerner, and Kristen is a lawyer, and we have just a bunch of uh, uh, wonderful kids in our family that have been a blessing to us. Do you have grandkids now? Yes, <laughs> I have three. Okay. I have three. Nice. Two boys and a girl. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so, you got married in eighty. You said? Eighty. So, when I met you, Bob, I, I met you in around ninety four, ninety five. Uh, I came out to Independence from Ohio. Um, I had graduated college. I was working as a police officer there, and um, and heard of this uh, program called the Youth Missionary Corps. So, we uh, came out to Missouri. I came out to um, participate in a year-long uh, traveling, doing missionary work, and I met you. You were one of the teachers that came in. We had a three- or four-week um, pretty heavy crash course on all kinds of things. You taught us, and I remembered remembered you way back then, um, kind of taught us on how to witness to other people. And I know that's kind of been your passion. Did you... I'm trying to remember. Did you write a book at one time, or a, put a series of pamphlets together in a book? Yeah, um, it, I'll back up just a little. Sure. Bit, yes. Uh, to Graceland. Yeah. And I had a close personal friend of mine named Mark Brewster who left the church and uh, it, and uh, went to another faith, and it it just hurt me deeply. I, 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 I wasn't upset with him or angry with him, but I was just uh, uh, moved by that. And to uh, uh, and I, and what I did was I started a ministry with Jim Reeves at uh, uh, South Chrysler Branch, and it was called Liahona Research. And uh, Jim and I worked for a number of years together. 
as partners to uh, uh, teach about uh, the evangelical gospels and uh, uh, what what. Uh, what evangelicals believe, uh, conservative Protestants. That's another word for conservative Protestants. And um, so I got so deeply into that that that's what launched my work with Book of Mormon interns was to teach them about that so that they would know uh, about other gospels. That is, um, I have... Well, so my generation growing up, uh, I remember when the church kind of split up. And so there's a generation of young people that, well, you see them at CPRS. You teach at Center Place Restoration School. I had yes. the administrator was here, Dan, shown him and shared his testimony a few weeks ago. Um, that is important. What? So your friend left the church, and that struck you as, um, did you wonder what the enticement was or, yes. or was it like, uh, what are we, you know, is there something that we're missing? Because I'm, I'm sure people leave other faiths all the time as well, you know, that they yeah. grow up with their parents. But uh, so that kind of moved you. To- I said, if something is wrong here, I want to know about it. And uh, if I'm believing false doctrine, mm. I need to know. So I dove into that. I have... Uh, I was at Graceland. I had my patriarchal blessing. You talked about yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had mine with uh, Brother Jerry Runkle, who I, uh, to this day, it's one of the more powerful experiences I've ever had. And then um, when I was about a sophomore at Graceland, I had that blessing. And he told me in that blessing, God did, because it was a God thing. He said, uh, you have uh, many gifts and blessings in your life, but there are two in particular that you need to pay attention to and to cultivate. And one of those was the gift of the innate, almost insatiable desire to know more about the beauty and majesty and magnitude of that which God has created. That's a direct quote from the uh-huh. blessing. The other was, he said, you'll find it increasingly so as the years go by, that you have the gift of influence. So I, that first gift really has been my focus that I've really tried to cultivate. And when Mark Brewster left the church, I dove into the scriptures. I'd already read, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon several times uh, when I was at. Uh, Graceland, I would do a lot of interesting summer jobs. And back after my freshman year at Graceland, I read the Book of Mormon three times while I was a hotel detective in Miami, Florida. And so I would sit there and read because I'd have hours where I didn't do anything. They just called me to come do something. And so I would you, read it. Did all you the just time. say a hotel detective? <laughs> okay, that's, that flew by me. I thought, did I hear that right? Now, oh, wait, wait, I got to stop you for a minute. What is a hotel that's detective? What they called it. All it means is you wear a nice coat and you uh, answer for emergencies. Like if there's a fire upstairs, there were 80 floors. To oh, my hotel. goodness. That yeah, was no small hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like two, four towers of 20 floors each, so four towers. Okay. So, so you had to go 
to an emergency if there was a fight. You had to go stop that, or if there was a, so like anything. night security, right? Okay, I was night security. All I was was a <laughs> night security guard. I was making. Uh, Two ten an hour. Two dollars a ten cents an hour. I like the. That's a great. So I like that name, Hotel Detective. Yeah, that's, that's what they call it to make you feel important. To right, make right. You feel important. So okay. So sorry. I so you so you had a lot of downtime. So you were studying. Right. I was reading the Book of Mormon okay. for the first time all the way through. I'd never read it all the way through, and this is the summer after my freshman year at Graceland. So I read that, and it made a real impression on me and I was a real student of the scripture that was before I got the patriarchal blessing and then it told me I had this insatiable desire so uh, to study so I uh, spent years after Mark left the church I spent years at late at night after my sometimes I'd stay up till two in the morning and I'd sleep three hours a night or oh, wow. you know I wouldn't do that all the time but I mean just sometimes and I get so deeply into it, and uh, I thoroughly researched every criticism that uh, had been leveled against the church, and I went into them as deeply as I possibly could, and I was not convinced that the restored gospel was false. I was convinced even more so that it was true, and so that was uh, a, a period of years it took to thoroughly investigate all that stuff. And then we wrote a book. You asked about a book. We wrote a, yeah. on behalf of Christ Restored Gospel, uh, summarizing a lot of the things that we had learned for people to benefit from. And so we take the criticisms, the really negative things about the Restored Gospel and we said, let's answer every one of these. So we went down the list and answered as many as we could. It was a committee of people that did that. I didn't write it by myself. Bob right. Moore helped and the McKay brothers and, and uh, Jim Reeves and John Tandy and a bunch of people helped with that. I remember that book and uh, because when we were 95, uh, I remember getting Liahona Research foundation was that what it was called yeah. I, re yeah. I remember your little logo and there was a series of pamphlets and and for different topics and then that kind of got put into a book form and i think i if i don't still have the book i gave it away but i did have it at one time is that still available at that yes it's available through me okay <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's uh, i've got a few copies left and i'll and, uh, get your email or, uh, or is that how you prefer yeah, people to contact you yeah. we'll put that in the show notes so if anybody's right. interested they can reach out absolutely. to you absolutely okay so uh Tell me some of these. Uh, so, some what are, what were some of the topics or some of the criticisms that you answered? Some popular well, ones. It, one thing was we, you know, the, the the criticism that we changed the nature of Christ that we don't even worship the same Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them for information about that and uh, uh, say, "What are you talking about?" And after a while, they would back down and they'd realize that. This is, uh, you can't say that. It's really the gospel that differs between Christian denominations more than the nature of Christ, except that there are churches that believe in uh, uh, differences about the Godhead. But I felt that the gospel was where the key differences were between us and evangelical Christians. So, um, I, I would go down the points 
um, you know, Chuck Swindoll is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he teaches one gospel. And what I found is that John MacArthur, for example, is another uh, pastor out in California, but he teaches another gospel. And both of them are evangelicals. And that was very interesting to me. So I researched that. And uh, that's so. Chuck Swindoll, early, look at young Mikey, back in Ohio, uh, back with the cassette tape days. I listened to him on the radio, talk radio. He has he had a series called Route 66, and he went through the 66 books of the Bible. Right? Yes. I, and I loved Route 66, the highway, the story, and I just thought that was so cool. And I bought those tapes and listened to all of them. Uh, and then, of course, John MacArthur, doesn't he have his own study Bible? Or yes, Yeah. So tell me, what's uh, give me an example of the difference between those two evangelicals as far as the gospel, if you do, if you know anything of that. Yeah, I do. Um, they, it gets really technical on faith and repentance. Um, it's, it's a debate about what are the components of faith. Uh, John MacArthur says that faith is comprised of knowledge, assent, and trust. And Chuck Swindoll says it's just knowledge. And um, there are various mm. degrees within that. And so they have their own definition of those three words. Uh, knowledge is understanding who Christ is to them. This, this is their definition. Assent is that that his salvation, I know that he saves, and, and his salvation applies to me. I should say knowledge is knowing who Christ is and uh, that he saves. Assent is that his, his salvation applies to me, and tr uh, trust is uh, commitment to Christ. It's a weird uh, definition of trust. And so MacArthur says all those are part of faith. And Swindoll says no. And he comes from the E.I. Schofield uh, School of Thought. There were four people that founded Dallas Theological Seminary, and E.I. Schofield was one of those. Schofield Study Bible. The Schofield Study Bible, exactly. <laughs> right. So if you read a Schofield Study Bible, you'll see in the footnotes that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. And a carnal Christian is somebody who never accepts Jesus as Lord but does accept him as Savior. So I don't have to walk in obedience to him. I only have to uh, accept him as my Savior. And MacArthur says, this is ridiculous. Accepting, you're putting Jesus hat in hand, hoping you'll choose him. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's all upside down. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, Swindoll and MacArthur wrote books against each other, back and forth <laughs> and back and forth until they wore each other out. Gotcha. So they, they had a real battle about that. Well, that was an opening for me because I'm saying, all right, that shows that it's not all one united tent like they'd like you to think, one happy family. That uh, and that's what I had the impression of before that that the 600 million evangelicals in the world all were one big happy family. Well, why are there so many denominations then? You know, <clears throat> that's and, interesting. But uh, they can find a common enemy in the Mormons. In the right? Mormons, and 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 accelerate <laughs> uh, to, to that is us because that's know? a huge. That's a huge philosophical difference when you're talking about those two aspects of faith. Yeah. Uh, 
and and how in your relationship with Jesus. I mean, even taking a word like accept, you accept right. him as Lord. Well, what the world does that mean? Yeah, right. right that's just a word. But right. I, I think that's crazy that um, that the evangelicals are so good at making this uh, f- philosophical. Well, like you say in the footnotes, it's a carnal Christian, and then they have these talking points that that becomes a verbiage in their in their walk with Christ, you know, carnal Christian and what that, and they all know that stuff. And, and in the restoration, we're so far removed from that, that I didn't even know that. I know there's different denominations, but I don't know the specifics of what they, Yeah. what do you think their push? What do you think the, the, um, the root of that push back is between like Swindoll and MacArthur? Is it, um, is it a rebellion against, uh, like, Mormonism, as far as anything having to do with a works-based salvation that they perceive that we we believe in, or Mormonism portrays, or is it is, is it completely separate from from that? Well, I think it has its roots in fifteen seventeen with Martin Luther mm-hmm. and fifteen thirty six with uh, John Calvin. John Calvin wrote Institutes of Christian Religion. And out of that came Calvinism. So whenever you see a church that has reformed in the name, you know it's Calvinist. And uh, Calvin taught the basic five things. Tulip that we've probably you're familiar with. Uh, uh, Tulip is T is for total depravity. Uh, U is for unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And P is perseverance. So total depravity. Uh, we believe that man is carnal, sensual, and devilish. We use that all the time to mm-hmm. describe man's nature. Uh, they believe man is totally depraved. Calvin believed that uh, we're incapable. Totally means man is incapable of choosing righteousness. He can't even choose that God chooses for him. It's God's tractor beam, like Star Wars. Uh, uh, does, does that get into predestination? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like that uh, uh, because God chooses. And so if you say, I have agency, I have free will, what they call human free will, um, if I, I say that I'm exercising my agency, it undermines God's sovereignty. Gotcha. And and so you're you're taking the glory from God and giving it to yourself, mm-hmm. and so that spills over into that battle in the '90s between Schofield and MacArthur, or, or Swindoll and MacArthur, and um, uh, in that battle between them, uh, there's there's roots of that in the battle between Calvinism and Arminianism back in the 1500s. How much of that glory do I take to myself and how much do I give to God? And so when Swindoll says that faith is just the understanding, it's really influenced by some of those trends that were earlier in the earlier centuries. Mm-hmm.